All right. So, two weeks ago, we began looking at this passage, and just to refresh your memory, we, we considered how at, in this passage, uh, we see what happens in life all the time. That is, we start something, and we're initially worried that it won't go well, and then lo and behold, we get off to a running start, and everything seems to be going even better than we ever imagined it would go, and then all of a sudden, it's like we hit a brick wall, and we wonder, what happened? And we become discouraged, disappointed, disillusioned, and we wonder, where's God? Has he let us down? Has he lied to us? What's wrong, God? You promised. You said. And we looked at this passage and we saw how there were a number of misconceptions or or unrealistic or false expectations on the part of the people. How many of their let-down experiences in this passage were the result of them not having really paid attention to what was said. For instance, they wonder at the heavy-handedness of Pharaoh's response, even though the Lord had told them that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, even though he had told him that it would only be after he had struck Pharaoh that they would be released, but yet they had unrealistically expected a quick and easy deliverance, a painless deliverance. They had presumed upon God's calling And you see it with Moses going off script, how he goes in there so full of confidence, and he just says, thus says the Lord. And he does not say what the Lord told him to say. And he doesn't do it in a way that the Lord had wanted him to say it. And we talked about how we so often as Christians are prone to think we're on a holy mission, and therefore we're like Jake and Elwood on a mission from God. And so what we do and how we do it doesn't really matter. No. The tactfulness of how we do things matters. The prudence of how we do things matters. But again, they had erroneously thought that because God had sent them, he could just go kick in the throne room door, waltz up to the throne of the most powerful man on earth, and say, let my people go. How often do we? think we can do something like that. But this passage, with its focus on the notion of deliverance, causes us to reflect upon the fact that we are in a similar situation and we need to have a holistic view of the redemption wrought for us by God in Christ. We many times focus on rightfully on the objective satisfaction for the penalty of our sins that was accomplished by Jesus in his death. That there was, as we read today, a record of debt that hung against us. There were consequences, legal consequences to our guilt that had to be dealt with. And Jesus paid it all. But we so often have a myopic, short-sighted understanding of what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not simply come to deliver us from the eternal consequences of sin. He came to liberate us also from the reign and power of sin. He came to deliver us not only from the judgment to come, though he did, 
But in light of that liberation, to free us from the practical bondage in which we find ourselves so frequently. We've already seen in this book how what God is doing in, this, in these opening chapters is setting up a conflict. He's, God is picking a fight with the gods of Egypt. The people of Egypt worshipped so many gods, but at their head was Pharaoh himself. And so key to even this passage is remembering that we gotta, we got to get out of our mind our 21st century egalitarian notions that Pharaoh was just a man. He was not just a man. He was a god to them. And so what he said carried not just legal weight, but spiritual weight. He was not just their chief executive. He was the object of their worship. Okay? So when God speaks in opposition to Pharaoh, it's not just God speaking to a man. He is, in effect, challenging the supreme God of Egypt to a duel. And that's what's happening. And we talked about how what's going on here in a very real sense is God getting Pharaoh to taste a little bit of victory so that Pharaoh will commit and go all into this battle. He gives Pharaoh that sensation that, ooh, I, I, I got this here. I got Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel on the ropes. So that gets him to commit. So God was just setting the trap, baiting the hook. But since Egypt with its gods and its idols is the motif in the setting, and since the people of Egypt, I'm sorry, the people of Israel had in Egypt gone native, and they had begun worshiping the gods of Egypt, and they had begun thinking of spiritual realities along Egyptian lines, and since the word for service, that the people of Egypt were in service, the people of Israel were in service to the Pharaoh, is the same word used of their relationship to the Lord God, we see that at a grander level, this passage is picturing for us a spiritual war for the worship and adoration and obedience of the people of God. A theme that you will see throughout Scripture is that when the people of Israel forget their God, the answer is not that they become free agents. The answer is always a turning away from God, turning to something else that is not a God, but becoming subject to that deity. And that is the way for all of us. Your, your alternatives in life are simple. You are either in subjection to the Lord or you are in subjection to a false God. You are not a free agent. So who will it be? Which God will you serve? In some ways, chapter 5 is, is the empire strikes back of the book of Exodus. Okay? Remember Star Wars, uh, episode 4, the, the original Star Wars when it came out? How it was, it was paradigm shattering. I mean, it, it was a movie unlike any movie that had ever been seen before. Okay? And in A New Hope, the Death Star gets destroyed. And, and Luke Skywalker is, is in his X-Wing fighter. And Ghost, Ghost Obi-Wan says, remember, the Force will be with you always. 
Okay? And then comes Empire Strikes Back in, uh, in what was it, 79 or 81, something like that, whatever. But Empire Strikes Back. Luke gets his hand chopped off, gets some bad news, and the movie ends with, with Lando in, you know, he's, he's been frozen, not Lando, uh, 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 Han Solo frozen, and, and the Rebel Alliance looks like it's on the verge of complete collapse. At the end of chapter 5, the condition for the people of Israel was worse than before Moses had even showed up. And Moses says in 5.1, thus says the Lord. He speaks on behalf of God. Pharaoh mocks and scoffs. And he, as God of Egypt, then sends out his own prophets, the slave masters and taskmasters of verse 10. And so in chapter 5, verse 10, when the, the slave masters and taskmasters say, thus says Pharaoh, it is to be read in exact opposition to the words of Moses in 5 verse 1. Moses is thus says the Lord is completely countered and checked by Pharaoh's thus says Pharaoh in linguistic style and form. Jesus came to set us free. Sin, though, has a strong pull on our affections, on our heart, in fact, the Puritans wrote a lot about the effects of sin. People think they were prone to navel-gazing because they wrote so much about sin. But the reason they wrote so much about sin was because they understand that sin will ensnare you. Sin will enslave you. Sin will distract you. Sin will discourage you. Sin will keep you in every way from enjoying the freedom that Christ has purchased for you. And so they wrote, they wrote vociferously about the way sin works and how to combat it. John Owen wrote powerfully in, on the mortification of sin. Mortification coming from an old Latin word, on the killing of sin. He said, be killing sin or... Sin will be killing you. The first Puritan book I ever read was Boston's, uh, or I'm sorry, Thomas Brooks' uh, Precious Remedies Against the Devices of Satan. It was written in the mid-1600s. And in that book, he sets out a premise that has come to be taken axiomatically, namely that both God and sin make promises to us. They both offer us happiness and joy and contentment. That is what they promise. Sin promises that if you will listen to it, you will be better off. And so in very meticulous fashion, Brooks sort of analyzes each of these ways, each of these types of promises that sin makes and how to counter it. The reality is that we all want to be happy. We all pursue our happiness. Jonathan Edwards reasserted it. In modern days, John Piper made it famous. But you see it here. Moses has come bringing the word of the Lord. I have seen your affliction. I have remembered my covenant. I'm going to lead you out. And Jesus similarly has come to us that if you take my yoke and my burden, 
It's light and easy. And you will find rest for your souls. Wow. Lovely. But have you ever noticed that when you try to fight sin, it doesn't just die easy? Have you ever noticed that when those sins that we have been in, in, in admiration of and we've been dealing with them and we've been, in a very real sense, cherishing them for years and we try to fight them and get out from under their control, they don't let us go? You see right here that Pharaoh is a picture of the way sin works. You think Jesus can free you from me? <laughs> you think that God is more powerful than me? <laughs> you think that I'm going to let go of you? That my dominion over you is going to be destroyed? <laughs> Sin fights back with a vengeance. Think about anybody who has tried to, to, to kill especially sinful habits and addictions. It is hard because it resists. And it's right there. When it does fight back, that we have to say, who do I believe? The people of Israel believed and worshipped when Moses came and did a few signs for them. When he turned a stick into a snake, wow, that's great. God's seen us, and they bow. But then Pharaoh counters that by keeping it in the real, taking away their straw, applying a whip to their back, and immediately they are crushed. For them, Pharaoh's whip was far more real than were God's promises. Now, many of you are in situations where sin has mastery over you in some way, shape, or form. And you want to be free. And you fight. But then it fights back. And then you despair. Is there any freedom? Is there any hope? Brothers and sisters, who do you believe who do you trust? You can see in what you are trusting by the kind of things that cause you to feel hopeless. What kind of circumstances can transpire in which you suddenly then despair? It's there that we see who we're believing. The people of Israel were not prepared for the reality of spiritual war. That it's hard, that it's long, that it's painful, and they gave up. You gotta understand in 6 9, when it says they didn't listen, they were done. They had thought they could stay in Egypt and just have their servitude lessened, the severity of it lessened. And many of us think the same thing that, oh, I can be happy in Jesus. And still have my sin too. Jesus wants full emancipation. You've got to get out of Egypt. And Egypt has to get out of you. And he will get Egypt out of your heart if he has to rip it off one finger at a time. 
Jesus wants you free from the clutches of sin. But who will you believe? Christ disarmed the powers and principalities of the world. And he is working. But I want you to know that he has not promised to deliver you today from sin's pull and power. And you do have to do something. You have to arm yourselves with the armor of God and the sword of the Spirit and fight sin. Fight for it with the power that comes from knowing that he who began that will complete it. But it's hard, and it's easy to become discouraged. The people of Israel came to a fork in the road. It was going to be either faith in the Lord or faith in the reality of Pharaoh. And you know what they did? They turned to Pharaoh. It's very interesting if you look at chapter 5, verse 15. The boot comes down, and he's grinding his heel on them, and they're no longer crying out to the Lord. Who does chapter 15, or verse 15 say they cry to? They cry out to Pharaoh. The same word. They were wanting to tap out. We give, we surrender. Have you done that with sin? The the difficulty, the tension, the the agony of, of trying to resist it becomes too much. And you so you stop saying, Lord, deliver me. And instead you tap out and you say, okay, if I give in in this area, then it'll leave me alone. You be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. What does Moses do? And I think for the first time, we see that Moses is starting to get it. He goes, and he meets with the Lord. And the Lord reminds him of who he is, what he has promised, what he has done, and what he will do. And the response of faith then is to go back and get on mission. The same for us. We are going to encounter kickback from sin when we try to fight it. Do we tap out like the people of Israel or like Moses? Do we listen to the Lord? Do we hear his word? Do we listen to the promises and act in faith? Knowing that the battle's not over. There's a lot of battling ahead for Moses. But he rests secure in the knowledge of his word. So brothers and sisters, we will have difficulty in this life. Remember, that's one of those unrealistic expectations that people have. That deliverance will be quick and easy. You will have trouble. It will be hard. But God doesn't just want your your outward worship. He doesn't just want your rear end in a seat listening to a sermon. He wants your affections. He wants your desire. He wants your delight. And as long as the object of our delight in our heart is something of the world, something of Egypt, there's no place for the Lord. And if He has purchased you in Christ, He has set you free, and He will rip those fingers of sin off of your heart. God wants you for his own. 
So the process may be painful, it may be long, but it is sure. Don't tap out. Don't be like Israel. Be like Moses and respond in faith and trust and hold on to the one who's holding on to you. Let's pray.